Alright, what's up everyone? Welcome to another episode of Talking Christianity Apologetics. My name is Josh Gibbs, and tonight we are going to be talking Calvinism with Kevin Thompson from Beyond the Fundamentals, so this should be, uh, it should be a good conversation. Uh, we're going to start out with a review of a video that you may be familiar with. It was a video that was on the Modern Day Debate channel that featured uh, Skylar Fiction and RC Apologist. So we'll look at that to start out with. And uh, then we're going to dive into some questions specifically regarding Calvinism and uh, the systematic, but also the biblical interpretation of some specific passages and concepts. So it should be good. Uh, good time tonight. Stick with us. And uh, we'll be right back after this introduction video. Make sure today that you leave this place knowing that you are saved to the glory of God. Thinks that one I'm going to choose. If you believe that, friends, you don't know the gospel. Is that the wonder of the cross is that no one gets injustice. If you, if you end up under the wrath of God, it is because you've rejected his provision for you and you are justly punished for your sin. To what the scriptures teach. I think the Bible does teach that God desires the salvation of all men. He has provided uh, for uh, the, the salvation of all men. And therefore, anyone who, who ends up under the wrath of God, it is because they have rejected his provision for them. And they are justly punished for their sins. The question that seeks to provide an answer to this question, for whose sins did Jesus die? The extent of the atonement asks the question, for whose sins did Jesus die? There are only two answers, two possible answers to that question. Either Jesus died for the sins of some people, or Jesus died for the sins of all people. Alright, welcome back. Uh, we are going to go ahead and get started. Let me see if I can get Kevin on the screen with us. And it looks like we're on. So, hey, Kevin, I've got you on the screen, and uh, welcome to Talking Christianity. It's good to have you on, man. Thanks. It's great to be here. I appreciate you asking me on. Hey, anytime. I think uh, you and I have got a lot in common, and and we haven't really mm -hmm. uh, spoken much other than what we've kind of written right. back and forth on uh, Facebook and social media and stuff. But right. um, regardless of that, it's like I, I feel like we've got a lot in common. Um, and I've, I've learned a lot from a lot of the videos that you've, you've made on your channel and, mm -hmm. uh, have used some of that material and some of the different debates that I've done personally. So, mm -hmm. um, that's been beneficial for me and I'm sure it has been for some of the viewers that are going to be watching this video as well. So, mm -hmm. um, but if you could it, just take a second and kind of give an introduction to who you are and for anybody who might not be familiar, um, with who Kevin Thompson is beyond the fundamentals and uh, just kind of let us know what you're working on, some diff some of the different stuff uh, that you have done and, and why that would be related to the topic of Calvinism. Yeah, sure. Um, my big passion is just I want people to understand the Bible. I think if people can understand the Bible, that it's going to radically change their lives for the better and that it will uh, sanctify them to a point where they can be the most effective person they can possibly be for Jesus Christ. So that's my goal. That's, that's been my goal for years and years. I had a military career till 2015, and uh, I was trying to go into the chaplaincy when I first started that, but when the Iraq war started, that diverted those plans, and I'd stayed as a signal officer ever since. But I've always done some kind of ministry. And the goal with, 
I started out having a video ministry just really as kind of a supplementary program for when people would come to the live sessions that we had. If they missed, I would also have some videos on the side, or maybe I would have a prerequisite. And then um, one time we, we were going through some videos that dealt with Calvinism, so I'll put a video out there, and it got a lot of return on it. And in addition to that, I've also had some dealings with Calvinism in the past where I'm aware of uh, pastors who are trying to take over churches with Calvinism in a very deceitful way. They, d- they don't announce that they're trying to do that. And then in one such case, I wound up succumbing to it for about a year. And so I have this... So when I when I came out of Calvinism, I was my big question was, how on earth did I ever fall for that? I mean, it's so yeah. obviously wrong. Um, but then again... How how can, what can I do to say something that that will prevent other people from also falling in the trap that I fell in and and wasting time in their life not making any spiritual progress because this thing has stultified them? So my real goal, I just want people to to grow in Scripture and grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. But I find that this is a a, a big obstacle to a growing number of people and it's it is very deliberately being spread through unsuspecting churches and that is a huge concern to me so i'm just trying to provide something that people can use so they can stop the deceptive spread of that um and so we can ultimately one day get back to bible teaching my big you know what? I'm, what I'd really like to do is I'm I'm really fascinated with something that I see in Ephesians four, where the body of Christ transitions to something at the full stature of Christ, where every joint is supplying edification. No longer just the pastors and teachers yeah. and prophets and apostles, but it transitions to where everybody is speaking the truth in love. Everybody is providing edification, and I'm really interested in that. And I don't see that it's been modeled anywhere. And I'd like to eventually. Uh, try to start something that does. Yeah, you know what? That's interesting that that you were um, that you bring up Ephesians four because I I was listening to that podcast that you did on your channel. Um, if if I remember right, I think it was the last one that you did with the interview. Um, I can't remember the guy's name, but you guys were talking about that subject right there, and and it's it's funny because that's that's kind of something that I was thinking about recently. It's like. Man, mm-hmm. what is the purpose of the individual within the church? Is it is it just to kind of regurgitate information that's coming in from behind a pulpit, or is it is the goal of a local church to get people to the point that they're able to um, kind of reproduce what is coming out of the scripture, whether it's from behind the pulpit or a system, um, kind of what the end goal is? And it seems like you're tying that into. Um, getting people prepared to get to that point within a local body or within the body of Christ to where they're really um, working on to accomplish what they're set out to do. Yeah, that's that's what I'd really like to see happen. Um, like you just said a second ago, people are taking information from the pulpit and they're regurgitating it. And so if, if you think of every every church has a statement of faith, for example, and we so we have a list of propositions that everybody thinks are true, things that we should believe. And then there's also true things that we should do, you know, don't drink or smoke or chew or run around with those who do. We got rules for that we're trying to live by, things we, things we believe are true. Well, what happens with these propositions is they get passed down. 
from generation to generation to generation. So, you know, if somebody's following, for example, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, that's written a long time ago. <laughs> so if, if you have a set of beliefs that come from a confession like that, or even the Baptist faith and message of 2000, or if, you're, if you're following something like that, or that's your beliefs, and then something comes and challenges your beliefs, you don't know the processes and you don't have any necessarily any procedural expertise in what generated that list of beliefs. Yeah. And what I would like to do is, you know, go through the Romans 12 transformation. And at the end of that transformation, one of the goals, because transformation will be ongoing, but one of the goals is that instead of just having a list of things to believe, you know the correct processes to generate that list, right. if you will. And that that generation process is the edification process that should continually be going on and people should gain expertise in that, not just learn the conclusion. Yeah. And okay, so I think there's going to be a lot uh, of levels to the depth of where that conversation can go and should go. Um, so for that, I think yeah. that I'm going to leave that up to you. So guys, um, I'm sure Kevin's <laughs> going to get into that. Uh, and he's got a lot of good stuff to say, so go check him out on his channel. Uh, he's got some recent videos that he's done on that very subject, um, and he he goes a lot deeper than than what we're going to be able to go into tonight. So, um, what I would like to ask though is, what are some of the recent videos that you've that you've done? What you've been working on? Um, kind of what what can people expect to be coming up? Because it seems like to me, um, your name always comes up when someone is looking to. Uh, give a rebuttal for a Calvinistic proof text. So it's like, well, who do we go to to get the one-liners or to get the depth of what we're looking at in a passage um, to to kind of to battle what the Calvinist is saying yeah. from their perspective? Yeah. So, so uh, this is a really good point to talk about. I mean, I'm working on several things. I just did a video on John three twenty-seven. Yeah. But it, so I'm doing a couple of things where I want to hit all the verses that Calvinists use as proof text so that you have the correct or have a, a better idea of what a correct interpretation would look like, for example. Better equipped to do it yourself is really what I want to do right. there. And then and also at the same time, I'm interested in what what makes a person's mind susceptible to a paradigm that is very clearly antithetical to scripture. So I'm kind of at the same time looking at both what is wrong with the set of propositions and number two, how do people fall into it and how we, how can we have a prophylactic against people falling into it? So I get asked questions a lot like, can you do a video on the Calvinist view of the sovereignty of God and why it's wrong? Can you do a video on the five points of Calvinism and walk us through Calvinism? And that's, I want, I want to change yeah. that mentality. What I mean, all the evidence that we all say that we're dealing with is scripture. And ultimately what I want to do is if I deal with each passage of scripture, ultimately we'll have an encyclopedic vi uh, like um, treatment of every passage of scripture. So any proof text that comes up. But the problem with the evidence is, and, and you'll find this in the evidence, like if somebody, science falsely so-called, when you're debating anything, if you'd say deal with John 6.44, it's like they, they only 
wherever the spotlight is, imagine all the scriptures laid out in front of you and there's a spotlight on the one you're talking about. The Calvinist in their mind thinks that the proof for Calvinism is in all the other passages that the spotlight is not on. Okay? Right. <laughs> and so we'll go, you knock out John 6:44, for example, and they're thinking the proof is in Romans 9 or Ephesians 1 or something like that. And then when you go to talk about Romans 9, John 6:44, even though you just proved that it cannot support Calvinism, it fills back in their mind as a support of Calvinism. And even though you brought them to a point where they agree that's not a good argument, you will see them two days later reusing John 6:44 on another unsuspecting person. Yeah. I don't know how to get that to stop. But instead of <laughs> when you deal with topics, um, there's this belief that the proof of the topic is in all the verses you're not looking at. And, and the, to me, it's kind of like when you listen to, uh, I don't know where you stand on this or where other people stand on this, but when it comes to, uh, when it comes to the sciences, when people talk about evolution, you'll notice that all the proofs of evolution are in somebody else's discipline. <laughs> you yeah. know, they, like the biologist thinks it's with the astronomer and all this kind of stuff. And, um, and the same thing with Calvinism is all the proof is in all the texts you're not looking at. What I'd like to do is mark them all off one at a time. So instead of dealing with a topic, let's deal with what is the proper way to interpret this passage of Scripture. Yeah. And then once you do that with all 788,257 words in the Bible or 31,102 verses— there, there are none left that support Calvinism. Yeah, and that, you know, it's like it's like the reverse of the inductive method for the Calvinists. You, you're having to eliminate the evidence that's at their disposal. Yeah, well, and you could probably spend a lifetime uh, doing just that, uh, eliminating <laughs> the evidence. So, um, but you know what? I, I always tell people, I'm like, man, you know what would be awesome is if uh, Leighton Flowers and Kevin Thompson got together. And they wrote a book that just went through everything that they've already produced and just put it into a text format that said, you know what, these are all these are all the texts that we've dealt with. We've put it into a print format and dealt with it in print, and uh, it, it would be at our disposal. I know it's it's all online already uh, with Leighton's yeah, blog, yeah. with his YouTube channel, with your YouTube channel, and on your website even. You've got a lot of of classroom notes and PowerPoint presentations and different things like that that are helpful as well. But I'm just, I'm one of those yeah. guys. I'm like, I really like what, I mean, say uh, David Allen did in his book on the extent of the yeah, atonement. Yeah. That's not necessarily yeah. a book on just the extent, the extent of the atonement. That's like a stinking encyclopedia. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, going through the historical context of the ma major, major quotations throughout church history. So um, yeah, which so having I a book that's... is helpful. We we do, you know, you ask, what are we working on now? I do have something I'm working on called a scripture video index, and it's uh, it's in its infancy. It's nascent right now, but I mean, out of I have 192 videos, and each video probably lists I don't know anywhere from 25 to 100 passages of scripture, yeah. and um, I've only gone I've, I've only gone through 460 something lines rows on this spreadsheet and only like maybe 10 videos or so out of the 192. And ultimately when it's finished, what people will be able to do is they'll be able to scroll through this spreadsheet yeah. and any passage they want to see, 
they will be able to go to that passage and see all the videos that talk about that passage and all the video and the minute marker where that passage starts wow. being talked about. Okay. So that we're working on that. <laughs> and, it, and there's a lot of people, a lot of viewers helping with that too. Now, that's a little bit better idea than what I had. So, I mean, <laughs> that's a little more interactive and that'll be good to That'll be good once that comes out. Well, so, once if you were to compile all that into a book, you wouldn't be able to lift it. No. You know? Yeah. It would be thousands of pages. Um yeah. so it's yeah, it's kind of it, there is a a where do I start problem to this. It's not that yeah. cuz there's plenty to do, but there's so much to do. It's kind of uh, it, it brings you to a halt just when which of these 150 things do I do first, you know? Yeah. So you just got to pick one and start doing it. Okay, so um let's let's go ahead and dive into what we're going to be talking about today and for those of you who are viewing live right now, we're going to give you a chance at the end to call in with your questions if you want to. And that way you can interact with with Kevin and um, in, in, online in real li in real time with us if you want to. I'll put that number up on the screen, uh, but that number just for the sake of it is eight one six eight six six zero zero two five, and I'll put it up when we get to the end. But um, before we dive into kind of this video that we're going to interact with online, um, I we've got a comment that I think would be relevant to the conversation and kind of getting us kicked off and getting us started. This comes from. Gina Smith and Gina Smith, as far as I know, is um, a Unitarian. But Gina says, "Why am I not? Why I'm not surprised that you do not understand this topic?" First Peter one two: Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. So, this might be uh, a good a good place to kind of kick off the conversation before we get into the video. Regarding who, who doesn't understand that who doesn't understand it. I don't know. I I would imagine it's it's going to be directed towards me, um, and probably you since we're both. Is she chatting with somebody else, or is it just one of us? No, this would this would uh, this is one of the first comments that's come in. So I would imagine okay. Okay. going to be directed to me. If it's not Gina, just type in the message that it's not directed to us. But as of right now, I'll take it that it is. So if if it is something that would be directed to us. How would you take First Peter one two and kind of lead that into um, where we're going to go with this video regarding election and foreknowledge? Well, um, the the concept of elect, I have a I have two videos that deal with election, and what I've found in studying is over like like two hundred and twenty four places I think in Scripture that where Hebrew and Greek words are translated into words like chosen and elect and choice and things like that. And so I've, I've gone through every single one of those that might have anything to do with salvation. And what I've found is that um, one of the problems non-Calvinists make is they assume, they take the Calvinist premise that election is about salvation. But what I've found, in look, and this is public, anybody can go watch this, is that election is actually about service and future blessing. So um, nobody is elected to salvation, for example, but they're elected to service and future blessing. And the elect according to the foreknowledge would be somebody being chosen for service based on what God foreknew they needed to do. Awesome. And uh, yeah, go check that out, guys. There's a spreadsheet that um, you have available on right. Etsy. There's a spreadsheet available. Yeah. So. 
um, go check that out. You should be able to, you should, and it's, it's interactive as far as I know, um, if it's not interactive. Yeah. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that spreadsheet if people want to get a hold of that? Yeah. So there's a video called election word occurrence analysis, and, um, it might just be called word occurrence analysis or election word occurrence analysis, something like that. And there's another one that's in tandem with the one uh, called election. It's nothing like you were told. Awesome. And so the word the word occurrence analysis essentially goes in under the in the description of that video it has a link to where it is on Etsy and I have the PowerPoint available as a PDF for free online but it goes through every occurrence of the words that get translated as chosen and elect and it shows that election is not about salvation awesome. it's not about lost people being chosen for salvation it's about save people usually not always but it's about people being chosen for service of some kind okay and that's obviously going to be a huge point of the conversation between calvinists and non-calvinists is going to be election foreknowledge predestination uh, some yes. of those main passages romans 8 romans 9 ephesians 1 and so Absolutely. on so um let's go ahead and dive into this video i'm going to share the screen uh with our audience so you guys should be able to let's see here it's transitioning there so uh, this is a debate that took place between rc apologist and skylar fiction regarding the problem of evil on the modern day debate youtube channel and uh it, i think that there's a lot to be said about this i know that layton did a review on this in his uh, soteriology 101 youtube channel as well so if you get a chance go and check that out he only he covers a little bit over four minutes. I think that we're going to kind of dive into a little bit of a precursor to where he started off in the video and uh, kind of kick off this conversation dealing with some of those particular points uh, regarding determinism. Because I think at the end of the day, whether you're talking about election, predestination, um, foreknowledge, the foreknowledge of God, the free will of man, it all originates back to this particular topic as it's related to um, the determinism of, of God in the Bible. I mean, ultimately, it either comes from the deterministic um, interaction of God with man, that God is the ultimate cause, as uh, what Ken Wilson has termed the unfree free will. Um, so let's start off with this video, and we can stop and play it as as we go and see where where we want to just stop and comment. It should be a total of just over five minutes.
Okay, so let's talk about this for just a second. Um, let me switch back to my screen here so we can both get on. Now, Skylar Fiction is not a Christian, and it seems like uh, in this particular conversation that he's having with RC Apologist, that the way that he understands the God of the Bible is the way that he's presented through Calvinism. And yeah. the way that Calvinism is presenting the God of the Bible, and as it relates to election and salvation, it seems like he's he's kind of presenting this as um, the deterministic God, the Calvinistic God, that really man doesn't have a choice when it comes to salvation. There is no criteria when it comes to the selection of God within election as understood by Calvinists. But where, where would you go to kind of start the conversation with identifying, um, you know, election and the predestination, the foreknowledge, the things that are brought up here? And then I want to ask a tough question. A tough question, huh? So, I th yeah, I think it's kind of interesting that this agnostic is talking to this fellow, and he's, he has the Calvinist view of God that he's using, because uh, Joseph Campbell uses the same version. He refers to the same thing in Hero with a Thousand Faces. He refers to Jonathan Edwards' sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, um, as an ogre god of Christianity. So... That's that's kind of interesting to look at it, look at Christianity from the outside through the lens of Calvinism as as you know, your lens set, if you will. Um, so with with regard to election and predestination and um, foreknowledge, I I think the problem is that when people hear these words, they think of these vast topics with which is associated a lot of systematic theology. There's, in other words, when you when you say the word election or predestination, there is an entire systematic theology that a typical Calvinist will import into the utterance of that word or the occurrence of that word, and they will they will see all that doctrine where that word occurs. And that that is the textbook definition of eisegesis. The correct thing to do from my perspective my understanding is that whenever a word like that appears in scripture you don't have this big vast topic of election there is just that word in that text and you interpret that text using the inductive method just like you would any other text trying to understand what the original author was trying to say to the original audience what thoughts was he trying to convey and the idea that Paul was always trying to com you know, communicate some kind of dogmatic proposition that can be included into a systematic dogmatic theology is just nonsense. It, sometimes he's just actually trying to say something. So the deal is, what's he trying to say here? And, and so instead of importing, instead of eisegeting an entire systematic theology into the occurrence of a word— you look at where these words show up, and then you ask yourself, using the inductive method of biblical interpretation, what's the author trying to say in this particular passage? And then you interpret the word as it occurs there in the context in which it appears. And it's that simple. So with the word predestination, for example, um, there are two ways you can look at predestination. You can look at the big topic of predestination, or you can look at the predestination of of any particular event or thing, or you can look at it in terms of salvation. Are, is the word predestination or forms of that word used in connection with predestination? 
And there are four verses in the Bible where a form of the word predestination is used in conjunction with salvation. And those four times occur in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, Romans chapter 8, verse 29, and Romans chapter 8, verse 30. Now, Romans 8, 29, and 30, they really go together. They're, so it's really only three occurrences that that's used. And so what you do is you come to these passages and you interpret them in the context in which they appear. In Ephesians 1, 5, um, and, and also with this, we separate election and predestination. We don't use them interchangeably. We don't presume that they are interchangeable or are the same thing or are coextensive in their application necessarily. Okay, we treat them like two different words because they are. Okay, it's yeah. that simple. So with predestination, it's very simple. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 5, saved people are predestinated to the adoption, which is the redemption of the body. A big confusion point there is people think the adoption takes place when you get converted, and that's ne never Bible never says that. Um, you get the spirit of adoption when you get converted, Romans eight fifteen through seventeen, Galatians chapter four verse four through six. But the actual adoption is defined very clearly in Romans eight twenty three as the redemption of the body, which happens when you are glorified. So what Ephesians one five is talking about the future of the believer, not the conversion of the sinner. In Ephesians chapter one verse eleven. We're predestinated to our inheritance, which is also a future thing. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 29 and 30, saved people, not lost people. Nobody, there are never any lost people being converted to get saved. In Romans 8, 29 through 30, it's saved people being predestinated to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Now, as you and I sit here, neither one of us are completely conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. That is in our future. We will get that when we get, when we get glorified. So every time that word is used when it's connected with salvation, it is always saved people being predestinated to something that is in their future. There is never a case where a lost person is predestinated to be converted or regenerated. You know, when you, I'm using those words to try to be as clear and precise as possible. Yeah, no, that's good. So um, one thing that I would uh, kind of piggyback and follow up on just to challenge you is uh, what would you say to a Calvinist who would point out that uh, there may be two aspects to adoption, one being a temporal adoption at conversion and regeneration, which is uh, which they would say is a reference back to John 1.12, that um, when you are converted through the gospel, that, that you become a son of God. And when you become a son of God, that would be that would be the, the initial spiritual adoption that takes place spiritual, where once you were a child of wrath, a child of disobedience, and now you're a child of light, a child of God. But the, the, the future adoption would be the adoption of the redemption of the body. So how would you respond to, um, to that, that that would kind of sub subcategorize adoption into two, two subcategories there? Well, first of all, they just made something up out of thin air as a post hoc rationalization to justify a presupposition they were already holding. That's good. That's where it comes from. Okay. And so I'm tempted to Proverbs 26, five, somebody who does that to me. And I would say, well, what if I, and they're, they're going to put the burden of proof on me. Like I have to prove it's not, for example. Yeah. And that's like saying, that's like a Catholic saying, um, we should pray to Mary until you can show me a verse that says we can't. And that's not how we interpret scripture. We interpret scripture with a blank slate. We, we don't start with a bunch of presuppositions like, Jesus 
was a homosexual who did cocaine every night until you can show me a verse that says he doesn't. I mean, you could just make stuff up all day long that doesn't make any sense. And then if there's no proof against it, you can go on believing that if you want. So we, that is, they had a presupposition of what adoption, what they need adoption to be for their systematic to work. And then they try to find a workaround to still make that true when the passage doesn't work. Yeah. Um, so that's that's the origin of that argument. And there's a lot of Calvinist arguments have that kind of origin. Their systematic needs certain things to be the case, and they will they will find a way. You know, it's like a Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park. You know, heresy finds a way. <laughs> it it just they'll find they'll find a workaround. You know, I work in project management. When you can't get something done one way, you find a workaround to make it happen. And they do that with doctrine. When scripture doesn't say what they need it to, they invent some other idea. Well, it could be like this. Well, it could be. Okay. So yeah. let's look at the the multiverse of possibilities of the other million things that also could be. You want to go chase all those down? That doesn't even make any sense to do that. So we only add things to our list of beliefs that we find in the scripture, not hypotheticals that we can't prove can't yet prove true. But th- the second part is if you went as soon as you go to John 1:12, that's not talking about adoption. Now there's a couple things going on here. Number one, that's talking about the birth. The birth is how we become sons of God, born of God, John 1, 13. You receive Jesus Christ, and then you get the power to become born of God, and then you're born of God by the will of God after you receive Jesus Christ. Very clear there. No adoption. There's no adoption mentioned in John chapter 1, verse 12. When people try to associate John 1, 12, and 13 with adoption, they are thinking of adoption in the American sense of the word, like adoption is how somebody becomes a son. Adoption is not how we become sons. Being born again is how we become sons. Adoption is something that happens to sons because you have to look at what adoption was at the time, you know, the euthesia, the, the Greek word Paul was using. You have to look at what that was at the time he used it, which is not American adoption in 2020. It's a different concept. In, in the Roman time period, you would have a like say I have a biological son the biological son, when they become of age, it's like a coming of age ceremony when they turn 18 or 20, kind of like a bar mitzvah, but a little later in life, where they inherit all the rights and privileges of the father. And that is called the, that's called the euthesia that gets translated as adoption in our Bibles. But it's, it's not the means by which non-sons become sons as Paul uses it. That was also going on back then, but that's not how it's used. It's used as the coming-of-age ceremony where you get a new toga, a glorified body, and you get all the heirs and privileges of being a son of the Father. Yeah. In fact, not just promised for the future. You're under school, yeah. you know, tutors and masters until the appointed time. That's good. So you're drawing a distinction that there's got to be a there's a difference between the new birth and the adoption, and that John one yeah because yeah yeah because there's different words they're spelled differently they have different definitions and they sound different. <laughs> well, I, mean, I don't know what good. else you could go by. It's really yeah. that simple. There's nothing complicated about the words in the scripture, and when people want to mesh them together to be the same things, one one of the basic rules of biblical interpretation is things different are not the same. Yeah, and. Uh, Things different aren't the same. It's that simple. It's a very simple issue. And if it only seems complicated if somebody's trying to prove something that isn't so. Um, okay, so a lot of you guys had mentioned in the comments that when I played that clip, the sound wasn't coming through. I'm not really sure why it wasn't coming through. 
Um, so I've never really had that issue before playing a video. So let me, let me, um, I'm trying to think how I can do this so that you can still hear the audio, Kevin, and, and the audience can too. Cause right now it sounds like for whatever reason they hear it or you can hear it, but they can't. So yeah, I wonder, I heard it when you played it. Okay. You heard it. I wonder what the deal is. Maybe I've got a, You know what, when I, but you won't be able to hear it if I, if I put my headphones in. So, hmm. hmm, I wonder what the deal, maybe if I, maybe if I turn off echo cancellation, that, that might do it. This guys, for those of you who are watching live right now, let me know if this, if you can hear the video and uh, send me a response as quick as you can so I can try to play it back and not take up too much much time doing this test run here. Okay. And you believe in eternal hellfire, eternal torture? Can you guys hear that? I believe in eternal torment, but I don't believe I can in hear it. the sense of... Okay, Kevin, can anybody listening, can you hear it? Shannon, okay, so Shannon can hear it fine. All right, let me, let me play this back to 4138, and we'll get rolling. Okay. And you believe in eternal hellfire, eternal torture? I believe in eternal torment, but I don't believe it in the sense of that's been traditionally disregarded in the fire. I believe it's a pure eternal darkness, since there is darkness language that is utilized within the text of Scripture. Okay, uh, so you believe that there's no contradiction with God uh, choosing before someone's even born whether they're going to go into eternal torment for no actions of their own. It would be because of actions on their own due to the fact that when they are indeed determined, they are still at that same point sinning in this world. And as a result of their sin, they transgress against God's law and are deserving of the wrath of God. That's what they stated because God time. made them sin. God has created the scenario in which they would sin. That's part of his decretive will. Everything that happens, according to Calvinism, happens because of God's will. God mm -hmm. willed that they would sin. Mm -hmm. Okay, so let's talk about this concept here for just a minute this is this has got a number of different things going on you've got uh what a lot of calvinists would hold to is compatibilism that um that john lennox and ken wilson would call the unfree free will uh Leighton flowers talks about the unfree free will quite often and essentially what that means is within the calvinist system you've got the com the compatible the compatible nature of God as being the only true free being in the universe who has the ability to allow his creatures to make free choices, but yet somehow within God's um, sovereign nature, they're only able to choose what God has predetermined them to be able to choose. Um, so I'm trying to, to give the best explanation for the position of a compatible Calvinist from their perspective and, and address it from that, that point of view. Um, when it comes to R.C. Apologist, he's just, he's, he's flat saying like they want to sin. They are sinners. They are in a world that they, they choose to sin. And it seems like scholar fiction is going, yeah, but God, it, God chose for them to sin. God, God set it up that way. How, how do you, how do you respond to this? And then I want to ask kind of a question that, um, that I've tossed around in my own head back and forth. And depending on the day, 
you're going to get a different answer. And, and so let, let me get your take on that. And then I'm going to ask you that question and go from there. Okay. Um, when it, there are a lot of complicated things. Well, actually, they're not that complicated. They're not complicated at all. There are issues that we make complicated because we go into philosophy. When, when I approach scripture, I approach it as if um, God exists, God is true, can't lie, the Bible comes from God, therefore the Bible is not a lie. And so I start with a blank slate. I don't believe anything until the Bible says it. So if I see in Scripture, approaching it from that way is that God sets up rules and different kinds of beings are free to stray from those rules. If that wasn't the case, there would be no such thing as rebellion. That's one of the things that I brought up before on other videos is that if there is absolute predestination and God has a decretive will where he has decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass— that brings up the problem that, number one, there is no rebellion. There's no such thing as doing anything outside the will of God. As soon as you come to the knowledge that something, that everything has been decreed by God, then you have the empowerment of knowing that everything you do is of God. And that's, I would not want to be around a person like that if they had a gun, for example. Okay, because that, that would be pretty bad. And in addition to that, I'm kind of distracted by what you got going on the screen over here. So in addition to that issue, there there being no there there is no rebellion, it also makes the Bible a lie because we are told very specifically that certain things are not the will of God. They did not come from God, did not command them. And like Jeremiah 19:5, it says God didn't decree it. And in the ESV, it says God didn't decree. It uses the word decree yeah. in the ESV. And then you have passages like in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where it says, this is the will of God that you should abstain from fornication. It's not, it's not a preceptive will. It is not a command to abstain from fornication. It's a statement about the will of God, and it doesn't give you two different kinds of will of God. This is the preceptive will of God that you abstain. No, it just makes a statement. So if that setup is true, then each one of us are God, there are because everything we do and say is of God, we just lack the immutable attributes of God. And there is no such thing as rebellion, and the Bible's a lie. And it's that simple for me. If I'm, if I'm going to believe the Bible is true, I cannot also believe that that is true. Yeah. Okay, so that that's going to lead me to, I mean, this, this is a question I think a lot of, I'm not the only one here that, that struggles with answering this. I used to ask it in a different way. I used to ask it this way. I used to the question that I would ask is that is is founded on this particular side of the conversation between Calvinist and non-Calvinist. I I used to say, well, man, it seems like we are worshiping a God that is so different that I don't know if I can say Calvinists are Christians. So if you're a Calvinist. That would mean, if I would take that position, that you are not a Christian. So I, I tossed that around and went back and forth, and I'm like, man, we're, we're just worlds apart. Like, there's 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 a God that's being described here that is, I, I could not say, like, I I believe that's the God of Christianity. So instead well, to of... Word that, to word that a different way, I hate to cut you off, but to word that a different way, I, I would also say that when I approach the Scripture, 
what I am trying to do when I approach Scripture and what a Calvinist is trying to do with Scripture are two completely different yeah. polar opposite things, have yeah. absolutely nothing to do with each other. So what I ended up, what I, I, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't answer that question. I, what I decided the answer was is, is there's going to be a lot of people that are Christians and a lot of different denominations that are brought into a false system, a systematic that is is not biblical. But but it's in spite of their system that would make them a Christian. So I I can't say you know Calvinists aren't Christians. But what I what I can say is I've I've come to the conclusion uh, that's not the question to ask. So the question that I've I've started to ask now is is that the God that I worship? The the God that is the all deterministic supreme being that divinely determines um, every thought, action, and deed of every man, woman, boy, child, and girl, and is pre-chosen who is going to go to heaven and who isn't going to heaven without any input or uh, responsibility or action or um, any in intake from his creatures uh, as it's related to that, that final destination, heaven or hell, and, and ultimately God's love. Like, is, is this... Is this the God that I worship? So um, I would ask you, Kevin, like, obviously, we've got a, a huge paradigm that uh, you've got a construct that's built into a systematic that has a lot of problems with it. But how would you answer that question? I know it's a tough question to answer. And if you don't want to answer it, that's totally cool, too. No, but it's can fine. You, how would you do you worship the God that Calvinists describe as the God of the Bible? No. Okay. <laughs> so there's so many different issues here. And it really, if you, if you try to dig down, peel the layers of the onion back, you know, go to the meta, if you will. The problem is trying to semantically encapture the concept of God in a series of propositions while competing with the populace for being the system that has it right. Yeah. So, Information exchange within humanity has, for thousands of years, been rivalrous. Whoever has the knowledge has the advantage. Therefore, it is advantageous for me to have the knowledge and not share it with you or to give you misinformation or to hold back or to make you think that you can only get it from me. Yeah. Okay? And so if you want a system to be accepted by people. If you want people to be ripe soil for your system, they need to believe that you have answers. So that incentivizes followers of any particular system to be able to give dogmatic, dogmatic definitive answers. Um, because people ask the questions, well, here's the answer. And a lot of people go to cults like Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons because they have answers. It's very right. tempting. We have like this addiction to certainty. We're very uncomfortable with uncertainty. And you cannot achieve any amount of wisdom until you develop a very close relationship with uncertainty. And the fact is, we don't – So, I'm, I'm, as opposed to dealing with what's wrong with Calvinism, yeah. the, the real issue is that – we don't know a lot about God. Yeah. And if a system comes along and says, we have the answers, God is exactly this. God administers his creation in exactly this way. That's the 
stupidest thing you could possibly say about a being as infinite as God. Yeah. And when we approach God, we, we should not approach him with a system from a bunch of dead people and, and basically tell God he needs to conform to this system that we have laid out in order to be part of our club. That's essentially what Calvinists are doing. And God is God. And I don't, I don't know what God is, all right, except for the various things that we have in Scripture. So if, if you were to compare what we do know about God that's given in Scripture versus what there is to be known about God, it might look like a BB inside a football stadium. Yeah. You know, there, it, there's just an infinite, you know, difference between what we, even though it's revealed in Scripture. So what's revealed in Scripture is not wrong but there's no way you can possibly semantically encapture what God is. So for any system to come along and say, I've got the answers, let me define how God administers himself. Let me define God's character and attributes for you. You know, I can give you some character and attributes, but I can't tell you that I got them all or I tell you exactly every, you know, he's doing every little molecule this way. Why would you say that? What makes somebody think they have the authority to say how God is doing, how God is administering his godness in in the arena, you know? Because yeah. he, you never know what God wants. What if uh, you say, well, this brings God glory. Well, what brings God glory? How do you know that God doesn't want a surprise every now and then? You know, after <laughs> all, it's a secret will. Yeah. If you were God and you knew everything, how would you be surprised? What if uh, if you knew everything, you know what your big problem would be? You'd be bored out of your mind. That's what your big problem would be. How does God solve that problem? You know, if you want to dig into the unknown, what the secret things of God are. I mean, it's really infinite where you can go with that kind of thing. So it's very hubristic and presumptive and egotistical for anybody to follow a system which makes such claims about God that are not revealed clearly in Scripture. So what we have to do is we... We make a list of what we know about God that is found in Scripture, and then for the rest of it, you kind of have to be agnostic about it and, and, and open and willing and humble and willing for God to reveal himself to you. And it's not going to be in a systematic theology that a bunch of rivalrous you know, people figured out 400 years ago or 1,600 years ago. It's not going to be that yeah, for sure. So as it's related to... Um Calvinism in the gospel, and in particular as our, our review from this, this debate between RC apologists representing the Calvinist perspective and Schuyler Fiction, who is, is, is talking about the problem of evil and obviously relating it back to God as being the origin of evil. But, but as it's related to the gospel, for, for the sake of our conversation and the, the, the determinism that Calvinism presents as the God like, of the Bible. Like, do you worship that God? So, yeah, you're saying you you don't worship that God, but but do we put... Gosh, man, see, and I'm with you on that. I, I, I've, I've come to the conclusion, like, I can't say that I worship that God, okay? So, but no, absolutely not. There, there's no way that I could say that. My God is not in any such semantic container of that, no. Okay. So now, how do you deal with... Um, how would you deal with Calvinists as individuals as needing um, the gospel? Do you see it? Do you see it as something that some a Calvinist preaching Calvinism, and as it's related to 
the God of the Bible, Jesus Christ, the gospel, is that someone who needs evangelized? So that's, I mean, you, you said the word gospel, and that is the key. That's the key right there, is to get to the heart of what the gospel is. And there's this, dis, there's this division between what a Calvinist professes to believe versus what are what what unintended consequences necessarily cascade from their set of doctrines, yeah. if you will. And so once you start with their set of doctrines, certain things cascade out. Okay, the gospel means good news, and the good news as it is presented in Scripture, the definition of the gospel is Romans one sixteen: the power of God to salvation to them that believe, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. The content of the gospel is given in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he's buried and rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Um, that's that's the content of the gospel, the see, good news. See, and I look if, at... For, well, if, if I'm elect in a Calvinistic sense, in a Gnostic sense, not in the biblical sense, if I'm elect in a Calvinistic sense, then Christ dying isn't the good news. Yeah. The good news is that I'm elect. If I'm right. not elect and I'm just a reprobate Gentile, then Christ dying is not good news. Either way, Christ dying is not the good news. The good news in Calvinism is that you're elect. That's the good news. That's not the good news of Scripture. The, it's, the definition and the content are given very clearly in Scripture of exactly what the gospel is, and election is not it. Now, a Calvinist will say election isn't our gospel— but it's it's something you can't escape right. from because that is the only good news as pertaining to your salvation that you can possibly know yeah. is that you're elect. And if if Calvinists can't see that, they haven't thought it through. Yeah. See, and so that's there, something that's there's no gospel in Calvinism. There's not in see that when we when I talk about the gospel with Calvinists, you'll hear guys like Matt Slick that say, Well, show me where I'm a heretic if I'm if Calvinism is heresy and preaches a false gospel, then show me that the gospel that I'm preaching is a false gospel. And and it seems like what you're what you're doing is you're you're starting with the precursor to the gospel. So what what you just said is show me where Calvinism preaches a false gospel. And so imagine a uh, <laughs> are you familiar with uh, computing at all? networks no <laughs> i wish i was but no you have a mac though i can see that you have a mac you ever run yeah. parallels or boot camp and you run windows on your machine um i've run google chrome that's about as much as i've gone gone with that if so okay so if you were to install parallels or boot camp on your mac computer if you were to let's say you run parallels right that, what that means is that you can run windows while your mac is on and you can open windows up in a separate window your 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 Windows computer then is a virtual machine and your Mac computer is the hypervisor, okay? Yeah. And the virtual machine, the Windows machine, will use resources from the hypervisor even though it's a different virtual machine. I see. And it's, it will use the same network interface card, it will use the same processor, it will use the same RAM, it will use all these things and it will convert them into a virtual version of them. So... From the outside looking in, if you were to see something passing through the network interface card, you would think that it's coming from the Mac, but really it's coming from that virtual machine inside the Mac, which is using the Mac as a hypervisor. 
So in that way, think of Calvinism as a virtual machine or a parasite, if you will, to Christianity as the hypervisor. It is encased within the hardware of Christianity, and it uses many of the same resources. So because it calls itself Christianity, um, you could say that the input-output device to lost people, like the network interface card, would be the gospel, for example. So it will use the same gospel with its mouth. And it will say the gospel as the Bible defines it, even though in reality that is not good news if the person isn't elect or if they are. Yeah. You see? So it, what it does is they use the hypervisor of Christianity to disguise themselves as Christianity, but the distinctives which make Calvinism Calvinism from within the parasitic relationship, pair-bonding relationship that they have with Christianity are distinctive from Christianity. So they are going to preach. They will say things that are indistinguishable from a regular Christian preaching the gospel because Scripture is clear about that. And when you ask them what the gospel is, they will tell you it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But that is the answer of a person who hasn't thought it through the fact that the gospel means good news and Christ dying is not good news for anyone in Calvinism. Yeah. So there's there's a little bit of ignorance on their part, and there is a borrowing from the rest of Christianity terminology, you know, same lingo, different dic- different dictionary kind of thing. So they borrow these hypervisor resources from Christianity to disguise themselves as Christianity, use some of the same lingo, but when you think it through, the necessary facts that cascade out aren't in fact Christianity, even though they pay it lip service. No, that's good. And I'm not an IT guy, but I could follow that analogy. So for those of you uh, who are not IT guys, <laughs> it, I can at least follow the analogy. It's like it, you've got an imitation within the system that runs off all yes. the same stuff, uh, yes. but it's not the real thing. And, so I have another. I have a diagram that shows like an oval shape of all the things we believe in Christianity. And then Calvinism is another little oval shape inside, which has its own distinctives, but it reaches out to many of the other things in Christianity. Oh, I'm going to take the attributes of God over here. I'm going to take salvation over here. So this would be um, where the conversation goes when I talk about this with um, some of my close Calvinist friends. I'm like, man, we don't believe the same gospel. We don't believe in the same God. Well, we preach the same gospel. You can't tell me we don't preach the same gospel. Okay, well, let's look at that. And you, you looked at 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and uh-huh. that's, um, Paul obviously lays it out very clearly. This is the gospel that I preached unto you. And, and, yep. and so that's obvious. But to me, that's a skeleton view of the gospel. You've got the right. death, the burial, the resurrection of, of Jesus Christ. And to me, when you look at the death of Christ, that's going to be the cross, all right? And, and typically, you've got three categories of the cross. You've got the intent, the extent, and the application. And that's going to be dealing with the atonement. So, And then you've got all these subcategories that fall from the death of Christ, all the subcategories that fall under uh, the death, uh, the actual death of Christ. What happened in the three days that he was dead? What happened in hell? What yeah, happened yeah. with the gospel yeah. that was preached? All of that. And then you get the resurrection, all the subcategories with the resurrection. So it's like you've got You've got the skeleton in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, and then all the details that that kind of fall off from that. So when we start talking about the atonement, and the Calvinist says, well, 
we preach the same gospel. We just believe that Christ only died for the elect, and therefore the the gospel is is good news for the elect. But it's a it's a it's a message of condemnation to the non-elect. It's a message of judgment to the non-elect. Um, so to <laughs> me, like bad that, news. That's not where's the good news? Like I thought that the gospel literally that it means good news. Like so, where's the good news for the the non-elect? Well, we don't know who who the non-elect are. So. That's where the conversation. So the, that brings it back to the fact that it the does. only good news you can know is that you're the elect. Yeah. If you don't know that, then you don't know if Christ dying is good news or not for you. Right. Because is a you could say election is a dependency of the effectiveness of Christ dying, and so Absolutely. you need to know that dependency. Yeah. Like we we can build a building if it doesn't rain on Tuesday. Well, that becomes that's the dependency whether it rains or not. All right. So building the building isn't good news till you know whether or not it's going to rain. You know, that's the same kind of thing going on there. No doubt. And I think that that's okay. So that's it's there's going to be more to mull around in that sort of the conversation, but but you and I are in agreement so far and I think that's uh that's that's going to help the conversation roll a little bit as we go into this next part of the clip. Mm-hmm. So I'm not going to be able to play the video for you guys who are viewing. You're just going to be able to hear the audio. Um, for whatever reason, when I switch the screen to share the screen with you, uh, that's when it's it's not playing the audio for you all. But I need Kevin to be able to hear it too, so I have to have my headphones out. Uh, long story short, we're going to play it this way, and you'll just have the audio. Sounds good. If it's going to play. Hmm, let's see here. At 42.31. Let me try to refresh this. I don't know what the deal is. Maybe I've got too much going on there. I need a better computer so that it can run more programs like this at once. Yeah. yeah. I had to make a investment in one of those. So, and the viewers actually helped me out a lot with that, so... Yeah, see, I need to make that it's, happen. I need better viewers like like you. <laughs> <laughs> so it looks like it's loading. Um, yeah, I'll, my Mac, my MacBook Pro won't do video stuff like this very well, even though it's basically the top of the line for 2018, 2019 computer. Dude, what's the but, deal uh, with that? But I have an iMac Pro that does the job. The iMac Pro, so that's what you need is the iMac Pro. Yeah, it's uh, hefty. See, I've got the loading bar there. I won't take too much longer on this. Um, well, I have the, uh, I mean, I went and pulled up the transcript. Okay. So if we want, if you kind of wanted to look through the transcript or something, we could do it that way if the audio isn't going to play. Yeah, we could. Um, let me, okay, so I've got, I've got it on a different... I've got my uh, another um, pro over here, and I was at 42. I should be able to get the audio on that computer, 42.14. So let me pull it up here, and I'll I'll do the audio on that one, and then you guys can hear that, and I'll just stop and go from there. As a result of their sin, they transgress against God's law and are deserving of the wrath of God. That's what because God on. made them sin. God has created the sin which they would sin. That's part of his decretive will. Everything that happens, according to Calvinism, happens because of God's will. God willed that they would sin. 
And in the classical Calvinist position, there is compatibilism, which is the determinism that indeed affirmed by scripture, as I even admitted and stated. But there is the fact that we still have the ability to make decisions, even though these decisions we make are not based on some autonomous will, but oh, that it is based oh, off of decisions. Uh, you can't, can you go against God's will? No. Can you go against God's decree? No. Then you have no decision. Okay, let's stop there and, and touch on that, Kevin. Or, or you are God. I, I mean, yeah, ultimately that's what it, what it comes down to, I think, is um, can you go against anything that God has predetermined? And, and this is going to go to a question that out of all the videos that I've listened to on your channel, I, I don't know that I've got um, maybe the answer that I'm looking for when it comes to the free will of man. And I think that <laughs> Um, what I have heard your position on the free will of man is that you just don't take a position on it because it seems like uh, I don't start with it. Okay, so you don't start with the free will. Of I don't man. start with it. So let's let's start there. Um, it seems like the Calvinist is assuming that the non-Calvinist is going to start with the free will of man as the basis for. Um, right, that's the assumption, and that's something we should not let happen. So where where. If you don't start, you're not going to start with free will. Do you ever get to free will? Well, if it comes, what, so what you're looking at is you're looking at, and I, I go, it sounds simple, sounds repetitive, but we start with your basic axioms. God exists. The Bible comes from God. God can't lie, right? So we're just adding things that we find in the Bible. In the Bible, we find God holding man responsible and accountable for things, okay? And um, no matter how many different twists or avenues you look it up there are you know <laughs> man's accountable yeah the the language of free will per se is not going to be in the vocabulary of people speaking greek at the time the bible is being penned okay so the issue is going to come up in terms of responsibility there and it's there's a little shell game where they play, they do this little anachronist shell game where they take the concept of free will, then libertarian free will, which comes up even later, and they try to um, make it as if that should be in the Bible if that were true, but the, the, it's, they didn't speak about those things in those terms, you know? I mean, words like the word dinosaur didn't wasn't invented until 1841, you know, the... Uh, the word naive didn't exist until the 1650s. The word monergism didn't exist until 1891. There's certain words that just don't exist yet, and so they're not going to be using those words. So, But what the Bible does talk about is it, it makes things very clear that man is responsible for the things that he's told. There are things like when you ask the question, can man go against God's will? And, and you said like against something God determined. Well, it, it comes down to what is it that God determined? So if you look in the book of Revelation, for example, and you look at the things that are going to come hereafter, I cannot stop those things from happening. Those things are going to happen. But are there any decrees about my participation in that or lack of participation in that example in Luke chapter 17, verse one, then said he to the disciples, it's impossible, but the defenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. 
So certain things are going to happen. And we know things, you can look, I mean, humans are pretty smart. I mean, we can look at any group of people and we can figure out group dynamics and how a group is going to behave in given circumstances just because of past human behavior. We can predict certain things, okay? So like David was able to predict the death of Uriah by putting him in a certain place in battle, even though nobody specifically was ordered to draw the sword and kill him. But he knew that event would happen, okay? He knew he could precipitate that event. Um, If I was a law enforcement officer and I particularly did not like a child molester, I would sentence him to prison in the and put him in the general population of the prison. Now, I know that when he gets in there, he's going to be attacked by the other men, violently and sexually. So you could say that I'm predetermining for that to happen to him, but I am not predetermining for any specific individual to be the one that does it. So there are certain, and like I'm a project manager, and so when, when you put a new team together, you know in advance that your team stages are going to go through forming, storming, norming, performing. You know that in advance, and you could say it's predetermined, but you, you are not forcing any one of those people to take a certain role in the storming, for example, when, you know, the point where they're not all getting along until you wrangle them back in. So there's, if, if humans can figure this out, and humans can arrange situations to cause people. We do this in the military all the time. I'm retired army. And one of the things we do to the enemy is we provoke them to act in a certain way so that we can get a decisive victory for kind of like judo. You want somebody to attack in a certain way so that you could exploit that, take advantage of them. And you're not, you're not predetermining them to do that, but you can precipitate that through wisdom and strategy. Now, if humans are at least that smart, how much smarter does God can, is God? You know, so if God predetermines an event to take place, and even an entity to do something like, say, the Roman government is predetermined to crucify Jesus, yeah, does that mean that He predetermined any specific individual to play a certain role, or is He wise enough to figure out that <laughs> when? when somebody rises up within an audience to, to say that something's being done wrong, everyone's either going to want to ostracize them or kill them. You know that in advance. Yeah. You know, if you, if you stand up in your church and you say, Hey, we need to reform this place. Guess what's going to happen to you. You're going to get kicked out. You probably not. I hope they won't kill you in the United States today. But, you know, if you were in Geneva, Switzerland during the time of John Calvin, you might be burned at the stake for it. So there's certain things you know in advance that if you go against the establishment, certain things will happen to you. And you could you could say, I'm going to send Christ in there at this time and it's going to stir the powers that be up in this way. And you know that by the formula of it, you don't have to predetermine any specific individual to play a specific role. You just... Humans are kind of predictable in that way, especially as groups. See, and, especially when you know what the idea sets are. And and, and I, I know you talk a lot about um, the group set mentality when it comes to different things like that, and, and particularly in this in this side of the conversation when it comes to ultimately where the Calvinist always wants to bring the foreknowledge of God, the determinism of God, and the events and individuals as being predetermined by God. It always comes back to seemingly Acts four. Um, when it comes to the crucifixion of Christ, and and yeah. 
one thing that I always point out is if, if you look in Acts 4, and, and it, this is something maybe if we have time at some point to be able to dive into some of these passages and really just it, yeah. ask some questions, get some answers, and go from there. But it, it, if you look in Acts 4 when it talks about the events, and it seems like you're drawing a distinction between the event and the individual as what's being predetermined. So well, God, yeah, two, yeah, there's two distinctions. Number one, there's a distinction between the event and the individual's role in it, right. based on Luke 17, 1 and other various passages like Ecclesiastes 7, 17. Um, but there's also a distinction between if God predestinates a thing, predetermines a thing, yeah. then what you know is that he predetermined that thing. There is no reason to presume that he that means he predetermined everything. That that would be inductive reasoning. So there's a big difference between the inductive method and inductive reasoning. In the inductive method, we only add evidence to its extent. Like if you see one thing happen, what you know is that one thing happened. Yeah. And then if inductive reasoning is to take that one thing and then generalize it across a broad population of people, you know, I know that because one woman passed SEAL school that all women can. That's inductive <laughs> reasoning, and that's not good reasoning. The inductive method says, well, that woman passed that training. Yeah, you stop with what the evidence is. You're not allowed to say stuff like that uh, where we're at in 2020. I don't <laughs> know if you got the memo on that. <laughs> I got a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but it seems like, man, to me, it, it's, it's tied into the spirit of prophecy, and when it comes to prophecy, I mean, it, we're told in the book of Revelation that the testimony of Jesus Christ the is the of spirit of, of, of prophecy. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. when we're talking about prophecy and, and prophetic events, which is ultimately directly linked to God's foreknowledge, um, we're either taking the position that God knows it because he determined it, including the individuals, including their thoughts, actions, and deeds within the individual to in order to accomplish the event. So it seems like you're saying, well, the event is predetermined and the individual's motives is something that God can use to accomplish the event without God determining their motives. And the Calvinist is going to turn it around backwards and say, no, God uses the means to bring about the ends that he wants to accomplish, and those means are included in God's determinism to bring about the outcome that he desires. A Calvinist but, has to say that. So why would a Calvinist have to say that? They, they have to say that because where that really comes from, the God ordains the means. Yeah. That really comes through when you start discussing the gospel and evangelism and if Calvinism is true. I mean, I know it's an age-old accusation. I'm not trying to use this as an accusation, but... I'm I'm in a position where I am the person introducing some people to the concept of Calvinism for the first yeah. time. They hear it from me because it's you know we're having lunch or dinner and somebody mentions that I have a YouTube channel. They're like, "What's your YouTube channel about?" Well, it's you know it's about theology, and I just try try to <laughs> minimize what kind of theology. So well, I deal a lot with well, what's that? You know, and then so after I explain it, I almost always get if it's a Christian, I almost always get well, that's so stupid. Then why would anybody need to tell anybody about Jesus if that were true? I mean, that's that's the intuitive initial response that everybody has. <laughs> and so, and so when Calvinists 
what their first point of apologetics for their system against other versions of Christianity is to say that, well, we actually still do conduct evangelism because God ordains the means. So it's, it's a post hoc rationalization for why they are still doing things that look Christian, even though there's no logical reason to do them. Yeah. So it's like when, when the Calvinist says that they, they evangelize against the accusation that, you know, they get that they, they don't really need to evangelize because the elect are going to get saved anyways, that yeah. they preach because they're commanded to. To me, that yeah. completely changes the motive for bringing the gospel. The gospel is, is no longer to reach the lost and save sinners. It's to awaken the elect um, who were predetermined. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So, um, but, but the problem, even beyond the purpose of it, is the motivation. So if, if we're supposed to have God's heart in bringing the message to the lost, and, and God's heart is supposed to be our heart, well, what is God's heart when it comes to the gospel? Is, is God's heart bringing the gospel just an obligation? We do it because we're commanded to? Or do we have the same love for every single individual to hear this message because it can actually change their lives? It can change their eternal destiny. Um, and to me, that, yeah, that, where it really, that hits it right on the head. But, yeah. Um, okay, so <laughs> I know we've got we've got a, a, I think there's a minute and a half left in this video, and we've been going for an hour and twenty minutes already. Um, <laughs> it just I got plenty of steam left. We we're on we're on your time. How, whatever right. you want to do, that'll work, man. All right, so let's play a let's let's go until we want to stop this. If you want to stop it, just let me know. All right. If you want to articulate how you have a choice about something, if God says, hey, I'm going to do X, and, and you're saying that I have a choice on whether I'm going to do X, you need to explain how I have a choice there. Because that's a straight-up contradiction. Not necessarily, because again, the issue is about what is the will itself. Is it completely, freely autonomous, which I reject, or is it limited? And that's what I was trying to explain before being interrupted. That's, that's a good place to stop right there. Okay. Yeah, so let's hit on that. So, I, I don't see any reason to... There are obviously certain things that people cannot do. Yeah. And yes, the will is limited. If you think of a game of chess, for example, you're limited in how each of the pieces can move. A pawn can only move a certain way, a certain direction. A knight can only move a certain way, a bishop, a rook. You know, they each have a certain way they can move, and you are limited in what you can do but you still choose what you do within those limitations. So when one person, because there's a limitation of choice and what the pieces can do, when somebody wins a chess game, do you say that it was, you know, it's predetermined for them to win because their wills are limited? Yeah. No. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. So yeah, there's certain things you can't do. You, you cannot, you know, levitate or you cannot, essentially what you can't do is you can't glorify yourself. Yeah. You know, I mean, you can't even make your hair stop growing. Well, I guess you could, you know, but typically, you know, <laughs> I guess you could, you know, go get cancer or something. But you know what I'm saying? You, but you not, typically, it's not the yeah. same as, it, see, a lot of people would try to pit the free will of man against the free will of God and say, well, it's either one or the other. You cannot have the free will of man if God has free will. And, and, and ultimately, because there's got to be one who is the ultimate supreme being who has free will or else he's not free and and so to me it's like well if you really do have 
the supreme being God who has free will and he is sovereign and he can do anything that he pleases, why couldn't he create creatures with free will that have limitations that they can't do things with their will that God can? For instance, God can will something ex nihilo into existence. He can will it and just speak it and it, and it happens. Yep. We have free will, but we can't do that. Does that mean that we don't have free will because we can't do the same things that God can? Well, I think um, this is probably not the right place for this argument, that, but I would, I would take issue with that. Okay. I would say that the body of Christ in its full stature working together actually could speak something into existence. But I cannot demonstrate that for you. See, now that gets interesting because you've got um, you, you've got a lot of talk about speaking life into things today, and a lot of it's related to um, the uh, New Apostolic Reformation, which is the charismatic movement that talks about the ability us as gods to speak life into things and to bring things into existence. So that would be something that I'd be interested. Well, I mean, let's. Let me give you a concrete example. Okay. okay. I'm a project manager for my secular job. Yeah. And what I do all day long is I talk on the phone and I send emails. And I and then I do other things. I review drawings and send diagrams, stuff like that. But the point is, at the end of the project period, there is fiber and copper run in buildings. Yeah. And all I did was speak it. And so... So there is a sense in which things do not get done without the spoken word or without the conveyed word, yeah. if you will. Without there, there is a logos of that project, if you will. Yeah. And I'm not the one out there doing it with my hands, but somebody is. But it would not get done if somebody didn't say to do it. Right. So of the things that are at God's disposal, which, you know, for lack of other terms, he's got magic at his disposal, right? Which you could say we don't have that, but we are in his image and we do speak things and we do have to speak things in order for, uh, and put that, we do have to speak things in order for them to come to pass. So speaking things is a necessary precondition of them coming to pass. And in that way, we are like God, yeah. in that we are in the image of God. Yeah. Well, I can follow that to an extent, um, no doubt, um, and and I can understand that. I think there's there's a lot more that could be said on that in that line of thinking. Um, yeah, and a lot of people would get upset because they would hear things that I'm not saying, and they would you know that kind of thing. But yeah, we we are in the in the image of God, and we do have to speak in order for things to transpire. That's why God communicates to us in words, and then we we communicate in words, and then things happen, which yeah. would not happen if we did not communicate in words. Okay, so we've got, as it's, as it's related to the free will of man and the free will of God, we've got a comment from Paul Capuano. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, if I'm not, I apologize, Paul. But uh, Paul says, but could not the will be limited in that it uh, can only choose sin and not to reject that sin? So you hear so often the so analogy. Sin, man's will could be limited to where he could only choose cocaine and not marijuana. I mean, yeah, you could hypothetically put any limitation you want, but until that limitation is listed in scripture, why would you add it to your set of propositions? See, and that's good. I think that what what you're going to hear from the Calvinist is the bondage of the will 
uh, and and typically this this line of the conversation of the the freedom of man's will is going to be that it's enslaved to sin. It's 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 sick beyond cure without a, a a supernatural intervention in order for this to happen. And obviously, it seems like you're drawing that you're you're drawing a conclusion. Like, listen, you can you can say whatever you want, but if it doesn't come from the scripture, it's just a hypothetical and and. As it's related to the bondage of the will, that's something that Luther came up with. Um, and, and today it seems like if you don't go along with the captivity of the unsaved reprobate and sin, that he can't hear the gospel and believe it because he's he's only capable of sinning. And you're saying like, that's a dead... There's, there's nothing in scripture that says that. Yeah. But we are very specifically told what we are limited from doing. In scripture, it's very specific for all of sin and come short of the glory of God. So yeah. when you're reading through the book of Romans and you come across Romans 3.23, you should see two problems there. I'm a sinner and I got a problem. I, I'm short of the glory of God. Yeah. And you keep reading, you get through chapter five and you're like, oh, looks like the sin problem is taken care of in Christ. I still have a second problem, glory. Now, the limitation of the will, Calvinists have to impose they, they, they talk about the bondage of the will. First of all, where does that language come from? I know, I know the phrase servant of sin in Romans 6 and all that, but the phrase bondage of the will, I think we should cast out all words that, we don't, that don't come from Scripture because of the confusion. Not that something legitimate can't be semantically captured in words that yeah. don't actually appear in Scripture. I got it. But the, we use so many words and phrases that aren't scriptural, and you think you would think the phrase bondage of the will is found in scripture somewhere because it gets thrown around so much. But what what the person cannot do is they cannot glorify themselves. That's the limitation of the will. You you can believe. So a Calvinist has to, in order for their system to retain um, paradigmatic conservation, they have to have people limited to where they can't believe the gospel. Right. Well, there's no passage that says that, but we do have very clearly laid out where we cannot glorify ourselves, and it, the the only way we get to glory is if Jesus Christ gets us there. That's why we have to trust Him so that so that He can glorify us. But there's nothing saying we can't trust to receive Him. Yeah. So, Kevin, if I asked you, how free is man's will? What, what would your answer be? Free enough to believe the gospel when he hears it. <laughs> That's good enough. Um, okay, so man's will is able to hear the gospel and believe it and be converted um, prior to regeneration. Now, let's... Uh, all right, so um, let's... I, I think we've just got a couple more segments left in this clip here, so let's go ahead and hit those and then move yeah. Is it autonomous or is it limited? I affirm it is limited based on the fact that God determines certain actions based off of our limited and finite nature, which desires certain things. Does God will that children will be abused? Oh, man, this is a tough one. Does God will that children will yeah. be You're one of his wills, any of his wills. Does he will it into existence that children will be abused? In the creative sense, yes. So God decrees child abuse. Mm-hmm. It's hard to hear. Oh, man. This is where it gets real. This is where it gets real. It's a reality. 
That is what Proverbs 16.33 and various other passages state, yes. Sure. And that is not what Proverbs 16.33 or any other passage states. Action that indeed is immoral, yes. Yes, but God decrees that people will do it. All right, let's stop there. Um, so this is something that anytime you bring this up with a Calvinist, you're going to hear you're making an emotional argument. It's not valid. Now, why? to me, it's like, how can this not be valid? Like, this is the practical side of Calvinism as it's related to sin, as it's related to the origination of, of evil thoughts, intentions, and actions of man. And, and as it's related to the death of infants, as it's related to the abuse of infants, the worst atrocity that you can imagine, the Calvinist brings it back to the decretive will of God because God desired that it would happen even though he pre prescribed that it shouldn't happen. So it seems like you've, you've, got, you've got a number of things working against themselves. So Kevin, I'm ju I'll just turn it over to you. Where do you want to go with this side of the conversation? It was a question that I... I'm very interested in how a person gets into Calvinism. And so my question for this guy in the video or for any Calvinist who would agree with him or really any Calvinist is where did you first encounter the concept of the decretive will? Yeah. And did, you know, and the reason I'm asking that is because I know they're about to fumble around to try to find a way to tell me they got it out of the Bible. And everybody knows they did not. Yeah. <laughs> if if I were to say something very simple, and notice how simple this is. I believe that God decreed the things that the Bible says God decreed. Yeah. And if the Bible does not say God decreed something, I have no reason to believe he did. Yep. That's it simple. It's very simple. So what is the Calvinist reason for believing that God decreed things that God does not say he decreed? What's the reason for that? I mean, I know the reasons because they're following a paradigm and not scripture, but it's a, it's a reason to get them to think. Yeah. What's your reason for believing that? Where does that come from? Why do you need to have decretive will as part of your vocabulary? Yeah. Why? What, where does that come from? You know, when I when I've studied my Bible and I'm trying to I'm writing down things that I find in Scripture, I haven't come across that one yet. Wh where did you get it? Yeah, that's <laughs> now that's a good point. So, and this is this is where it gets personal for me because I've got family members. Everyone knows someone who has lost a child prematurely. It yeah. this this happens. It it happens. And, and I've got Calvinist friends who have lost children prematurely. And I've asked them, I won't give any names or anything on the show, but I've asked them all, just in a one-on-one -on -one conversation, like, where do you believe your child is at right now? And both Calvinists who had this happen to them, both, both Calvinists that I, I spoke with told me that they believe that children who die prior to hearing the gospel cannot be the elect because they have not been reading ordains the means and yeah so so now on the practical side you you do have some calvinists who say well all children who die and they just have the conviction they are the elect and that god's taken them home early for whatever reason they have no it's not falsifiable it's just no. a, yeah 
so, no, let's so just state it. but now I'd like to just take a second for anyone who may be listening to this, this, uh, this podcast here tonight and maybe going through something like that. If you can hear and give a biblical perspective on um, what they can expect to, to find a biblical answer as it's related to the death of an infant or a premature death, something like that, a real practical sense for someone who needs to hear this. Kevin, how would you respond to somebody like that? Um, I'll try to give you basically four passages of Scripture, and one of them isn't a passage of Scripture because it's found in several places. And the first one would be, Jesus says, let the little children come to me. And, um, of course, it's in his earthly ministry there, but it's one of those things that it just resonates. When Jesus says, let the little children come to me, it just resonates. Um, I cannot imagine Jesus saying that and it not having deeper implications. And now I would go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, when the, um, the just to give you an idea of how God treats the little ones, they're... In Israel, they're supposed to be going into the promised land, and you know they they don't believe Joshua and Caleb, and look what he's and, and so they're going to wander around in the wilderness for forty years, and the everyone who's twenty years old and older is going to die off. But he says in Deuteronomy one thirty nine, moreover, your little ones, which he said should be a prey, and your children, which in that day had no knowledge between good and evil, they shall go in thither, and unto them will I give it and they shall possess it. So no knowledge between good and evil, and it's considered innocent. Like people say Adam and Eve were perfect. No, they weren't perfect. They were innocent, okay? I'm going to go into Nehemiah chapter 8, I think, and you look at Ezra, look at verse 3, Nehemiah chapter 8. Verse 2 and 3, And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation, both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until the midday before the men and the women and those that could understand. Now, our typical phrase that we hear is men, women, and children. But notice how they say it, before the men and the women and those that could understand, which implies that the audience was not composed of people who could not understand, which would probably be children who are precognitive in that sense, or might also involve some of God's special children. You know, not everybody is of, you know, intelligent mental capacities because maybe they're mentally ill or um, not very well developed or that kind of thing, kind of, kind of slow or something. Um, so it, the audience is men, women, and those that could understand. So it, that would imply the audience there, Okay. Those are the people that give attendance to the book. So if you're looking for the phrase men and women and children. Now I'm going to go to Romans chapter 4. And I'm going to say right around verse 15. Because the law worketh wrath. For where no law is, there is no transgression. And like in Nehemiah chapter 8. People can't understand the law. You can't you can't rightly hold them accountable for something that they can't even understand. So there is no transgression of the law for those who can't understand it, is where I would take that. Very next chapter, Romans chapter five, verse 
13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed where there is no law. And for children that cannot understand the law, they're considered innocent. I do not think sin is imputed when there is no law that they can understand. And the last verse that I would take you to, um, to be brief, is Hebrews chapter 5. Oh, I typed that in wrong. Got scared for a second. I'm like, that doesn't look anything like what I was expecting. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is ordained for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. Now look at what it says next. And Christ is obviously our high priest, right? Who can have compassion on the ignorant and on them that are out of the way, for that he himself also is compassed with infirmity. So there are people that are ignorant and there are people that are out of the way. And uh, our high priest has compassion on those people. So I guess the brief answer is that based on these passages and, of course, others out of Psalms and other places, I see children as innocent people who are not have no expectation of following the law, therefore cannot be considered as having the law. Sin is not imputed to them. They're considered innocent. Yeah. Now, I, I definitely don't think they go to hell. Now, am I saying that they're in Christ? And I, I don't know if they're part of the body of Christ or not. I, that's... You know, that's a lot more study and a lot deeper conversation would have to go into that. But I definitely don't think they go to hell. and I do think they go to be with the Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's where that's where you've got a comforting message that um, that isn't isn't something that has to be based in an emotionally charged argument, but they can be built upon from a biblical perspective on what the Bible actually says about the death of an infant. I mean, you take, for example, right. David. The consequence of, of David's sin resulted in the death of, of his, his firstborn son. But he knew from the promise that he had of the revealed character of God, of 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 what he knew about God's character, of what he knew about um, God's perspective on children and God uh, re- regarding the gospel in conjunction with those things, that he could he could say with confidence that he would see his son again someday. And yeah, Proverbs seventeen fifteen. It's just, I mean, it the, those. Those simple things like that, guys, it's not an emotionally charged argument to be able to have a conversation about something that is as sensitive emotionally as, as this sort of a topic. And for those of you who may be struggling with something that um, like that that may be going on in your life, I would highly encourage you um, to step out away from the Calvinist perspective when it comes to an explanation of the elect versus the non-elect. And just go to the scriptures and look at what the Bible teaches on the subject. So um, we've got about 45 seconds left in this video, but we've been going yeah. for an hour and, and 40 minutes. So if you wanted to, to do the last 45 go seconds, for it. Yeah. So, let's have it. All right, let's, let's do that. <laughs> and then I think that'll be a good place to wrap up. And then next time, we're going to do it next time, maybe. So Yeah, I'll, yeah, I'm all for it. So um, the next time we get together, we're going to talk a little bit about 
the perseverance of the saints as it's related to yes. uh, the assurance of salvation for a Calvinist. Yeah, I, was, I, think, I was looking forward to that, actually. Dude, that's huge <laughs> to me. It's like I was having this conversation with uh, Chris Williams, who's K-Dub. Um, you may have seen him on Facebook or Twitter. But um, but anyways, I was talking to him about it, and I'm like, dude, we need to debate once saved, always saved. And he's like, why? You don't believe it anymore? I'm like, no, I do. You don't. Like you don't have any assurance <laughs> of your salvation, man. Like, well, I think the doctrine and assurance are two different things. Yeah, but yeah, that's good. All right, and we'll be able to break that down and get into it a little bit more. And I also want to take a look at um, Matt Dillahunty's uh, most recent debate with uh, who was that? Um, oh, he just debated. Oh, Ray Comfort, which Ray Comfort oh. Calvinist. <laughs> So they, yeah, yeah. It's like those two just, but but I I want to look at a, a couple of clips from Matt Dillahunty in that debate. And uh, well, anyways, I, I just it's happenstance. I I just had a I recorded a session a week and a half ago that deals with eternal security based out of Colossians. Well, the conversation started in Colossians, so okay. I haven't posted it yet, but um, I will be posting that on my channel. As soon as I can get around to editing it and posting it, that's good. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, so that'll be interesting. If you might want to watch that, but then we can yeah. have another session on that. Yeah, that'd be good. Let's uh, I'll do that then. So and we can come back to it. So and there's other things we'll get into. So stay tuned for that. But let's play the last 45 seconds of this clip, and then we'll we'll turn it over to the audience. If you guys have any questions, you can call in and go from there. So sure. For like I said earlier, for his own purpose and for his own glory, for his own pleasure. Right. So tell me, tell me what that means. So God has somebody rape somebody with his decretive will and he does it for his own. Uh, what was the word you use? Wasn't I use pleasure uh, for his own glory. So how is it bringing glory to God when he has somebody rape a woman? As he states in the passage and not just in Romans nine, but as elsewhere within, especially Romans three, that he uses so to demonstrate the wrath of God upon the sinner, upon the wicked who, dem who do these particular acts so that his justice may be seen upon those who act upon sin and then to give oh. grace to the others. So he in order to show people how powerful he is, he's going to have people rape people so that he can punish the people who can't go against what he's decreed. Yeah. You think this sounds reasonable? From the Christian worldview, it is the only thing that can be reasonable versus all the other different worldviews out there. Yes. Oh, all right. Goodness. Well, I think that's going to be a good place to wrap it up. Kevin, how would you respond to Skylar Fiction if he asked you that question regarding the decretive will of God and the, the evil atrocities that happen re relating to the problem of evil and God's role in it. Um, is that something that, that you think that God determines to happen so that it will bring him glory in some way? No. Um, first of all, there's no decretive will where we're not told there's one. So that's a non-issue until I encounter it in Scripture. But when man sins, that constitutes rebellion against God. And to put it in terms of New Testament word of the word sin— it's either transgression of the law or missing the mark, yeah. okay? Because the word sin means missing the mark. And your highest ideal is not to rape somebody. <laughs> <laughs> and that, that is, we fall short of the glory of God. So to say that something that makes us fall short of the glory of God is also what glorifies God is one of the most counter 
you know, one of the most antithetical things you could say, self-antithetical things. It's a self-refuting statement. Yeah. And it doesn't make any sense. And it, it, to me, it shows how when you have a paradigm, it can either conserve itself or it can better respond to the evidence when it's resolving dissonance. And when you conserve itself against the evidence, we call that delusion. And it resorts to delusion in order to conserve the paradigm. And that's exactly what you have going on there. Yeah. Okay, so I think this, guys, is going to be a good place to wrap up our conversation for tonight. But I want to turn it over to you. If you can see it on the screen, you're going to have a chance to call in if you would like to uh, with any question that you've got regarding Calvinism or if something you just want to ask Kevin a question. So this is your chance. 816-866-0025. And uh, now would be the time to call if you do have a question. If you don't, uh, we can go through the comment section in the meantime. I don't know if you had any, anything that you had seen, Kevin, by chance that you wanted to address. In the um, no. Yeah, I hadn't always had the comments available to me. Um, okay, so let's see... Uh, if we don't, that's totally fine too. So, and you can type in a question too if you have a question and would rather just type it instead of call in. So, um, okay, let's see. I don't think there were many questions that were coming in. Uh, I know there were some side conversations, so... Yeah, I see some side conversations. But, anyways, okay, well, that'll... I think that's going to wrap it up then, so... Okay. Let me see. Oh, there's, there's one new comment. Uh, David Nooner, let me put that up on the <laughs> screen. David Nooner says, Do you believe Calvinism teaches a different gospel and a different Christ? We kind of... Uh, different, a little bit. yeah. Yeah, different gospel for sure. Absolutely. Well, okay. When you say, does Calvinism teach a different gospel? Um, it, it pays lip service to the same gospel that Christianity has, which is death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The problem is, is that if Calvinism is true, then the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ does not constitute good news, which is what the word gospel means. Um, the only we covered this earlier is that the only good news you could have is that you're elect. So when when Calvinism when a Calvinist preaches the gospel, it's very interesting to listen to what they say. You know, I heard John MacArthur was on the Ben Shapiro show a while back, and I did a video as a response to it, and he's talking about Christ's forgiveness. I forget exactly how it was worded, yeah. but he made it sound like Christ's forgiveness was available to Ben yeah. Shapiro. How would he How would he know that? Dude, you know, I ben remember Shapiro that. Is a, he's a Christ-rejecting Jew. So how on earth would you... You don't know whether Ben Shapiro is elect or not, so how can you say that salvation is available to him? So it's... It's one of those things where if you present the gospel as if people can believe it, it's misleading. At, at best, it's misleading. Yeah. Maybe not technically saying anything false. And I've heard, I've heard them really dance around this and get very technical, like Christ died. Um, Christ died for sins and saves those who trust him, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, 
I've, I've heard him, you know, kind of be real discreet about it. And it's still, you can, and then you have somebody telling the whole audience, you know, Christ offers forgiveness to all of you. And if you'll just trust, you know, Christ died for you. I've heard him say that a Calvinist say things like that, that according to his system, he cannot possibly believe. Right. So either he hasn't thought it through or he's okay with fibbing <laughs> and, <laughs> and conveying a false message to put this false hope in people that salvation is available to them when there's no way he could possibly know yeah. that. I, I think if, it, so. You know, if they were if they were true, I mean, if they were if they were putting their money where their mouth was, if they preached what they believed, they would be like, "Christ died for the elect. If you're the elect, you will automatically believe when you hear this. Yeah. If you're one of His sheep, unless God doesn't want you to believe now. It's funny how they pull that one out. You know. Right. Yeah, the evanescent grace. But uh, so that's to me, guys, the simplest way to to ask yourself if if the gospel is is being preached. Is the identity of Christ, and uh, if you're if you can find yourself saying, "Yeah, Jesus Christ is God manifest in the flesh. He is the second person." I'm not saying this is the gospel. I don't know. Is Christ the one that died for all? I heard a Calvinist. I talked to a Calvinist the other day. I debated him on my channel about he saying, "I don't believe in the Christ who didn't predestinate everything. uh, You know, meticulously, divinely predestinate everything." Well. Well, I don't believe in the Christ who didn't die for all. Right. I don't believe in the Christ who didn't give himself a ransom for all. I don't believe yep. in the Christ who didn't taste death for every man. Yep. You know, those things are very clear in Scripture. You know, Second yep. Corinthians chapter five, verse fourteen through fifteen, Hebrews chapter two, verse nine, uh, you know, First Timothy chapter two, verse six. I mean, and the list goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, which depends on how you define Christ. If you're looking at the the work of Christ. It's very clear that Christ died for, tasted death for every man. And if, yep. and if you don't believe in that Christ, that's a different Christ then. Yep. And he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. For the sins of the whole world. Um, yep. Okay, so we've got a couple more questions that have come in. And I think this one is actually, uh, it's, it's right in line with what we've been talking about. It's right in line with uh, what Calvinism actually teaches as, as it's related to uh, perseverance of the saints, and it is uh, from Laura Kakashki. I hope I'm saying that right, Laura. But you've got a good question. She says, "I'm hearing more about the evils of lordship salvation, and uh, what is this? And is it wrong to repent?" Question mark Is this adding to the basic command of just believe? And I'll put that second half up there. But it seems like you've got two categories in this question. One is lordship salvation. And the other is repentance. Is repentance as defined by lordship salvation the way that I would take that? Lordship salvation says that repentance is turning from your sin and making Jesus the Lord of your life. And if he's not Lord of all of your life, then he's not Lord of your life at all. So what that means to me is if you're not moving towards a sanctified, being continually justified and sanctified life as a Christian, that... Jesus is not Lord, and you are, from a Calvinist perspective, you were never actually truly born again. But that would be part of the danger with Lordship Salvation. There's been a lot of work done in this particular topic, um, on this particular topic, as it's related to uh, the differences between Lordship Salvation and Lordship Sanctification. And that's where I would draw the distinction there. But Kevin, how would how would you take Lordship Salvation and is 
repentance, turning from sin, and is is repentance necessary for salvation? So <laughs> that's a. I was going to bring that point up too. I heard Ken Wilson, I think, was talking to Leighton Flowers recently, and he was asked if he believed in lordship salvation. And he said, I believe in lordship sanctification, yeah. but not lordship justification. Okay. And so lordship is kind of a hijacked word. To understand lordship salvation, it's really key to understand why it exists. And it's it's a post hoc rationalization doctrine in order to combat antinomianism. Antinomianism is somebody, because they believe they're saved and free, they're saved and they can't go to hell, but they live like the devil. That's essentially what it is. They just go live wild. They're saved. Nothing can make. So if you are an administrator in a Calvinist church that has, especially if it's a Calvinist government, like, you know, after the Reformation, all the, all the Protestant churches, were state churches just like the Catholics. So so if you need to control your people, you need to have some kind of arbitration over whether or not they are among the accepted group, you know, whether they are in-grouped or not. Yeah. And it's very powerful to be able to tell people you are saved, you aren't saved. And practically it's the practically lordship salvation is the practical way to get to you lost your salvation that that some of the other denominations have, like the Assemblies of God, Church of Christ, those people believe that you can lose your salvation. What you need is you need a way to control people. You need a way to make sure they toe the line and behave themselves. Right? If you're wearing a watch right now, you can thank John Calvin because he forbade the wearing of jewelry. They have very strict rules. You can't wear jewelry because it's, you know, exalting your ego and stuff like that. So since they couldn't wear jewelry, they got away with it with a technicality. They're like, well, this isn't just jewelry. This is a timepiece. So the Swiss became very good at making timepieces because it was their workaround to wear jewelry because it was against, it was against the law. So um, it's kind of a little side note, but that this whole, if you're wearing a wristwatch, it should remind you of Lordship Salvation because they put all these rules and regulations on you. You have to do this, 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 this. If you don't do these things, the Assemblies of God person will say, well, you lost your salvation. And then the Calvinist will say, well, you never were saved or you'd be <laughs> doing the right thing. And now whose rules, whose rules ultimately, when you yeah. talk about you know Lordship Salvation, when you talk about following Jesus as Lord, who is the human that decides that you are or aren't doing right? Yeah. And ultimately what it boils down to is it is a mechanism by which a human can make you feel like you're not saved so that they can control the way you behave and so that you look to them as their authority because hierarchy needs are – they play a bigger role into why people believe things than, than actual epistemology. And that's really what's going on behind the scenes. It's a way to control how people behave. Now, the word repent coming in there, if you look at here's, – here's the funny thing about Lordship Salvation. If you were to look at, say – let me close this off and go to Hebrews chapter 6. Yes. Hey, I was going to uh, – we're going to get to this in, in more detail if we get a chance to as well. No, I'm not going where you pro might think I'm going. Okay. <laughs> if you look at the word repent and repentance and how it's used, repentance and acts, I think it's 20 verse 21 is toward God. There's repentance yeah. toward God, okay? 
And then in Hebrews chapter 6, he says, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from idolatry and witchcraft and fornication. That's not what it says. It says repentance from dead works. Yeah. Repent. The, the, the time you're told to repent from something is, is, is a very religious thing. It's a very works-based thing, dead works. And you have a religious system that's a bunch of do's and don'ts, touch, not taste, not handle, not like in Colossians chapter 2. And part of the – whenever you're told to repent from something, you're supposed to repent from that. And you're supposed right. to repent toward God. Now, I'm very interested in the word repentance because I started rethinking the word repentance because I heard somebody use it who was not even a Christian. They weren't anti-Christian. They just weren't – it wasn't a Christian. Let me, put, let me rephrase it. It was not a Christian context. It was, mm. a, it was a psychology context. And yep. they, were, they used the word metanoia. Yep. And uh, that – I'm like, I know that word. I know that word. Oh, yeah, that's the yeah. word that gets tra translated as repentance. Yeah. And, the, and then metanoeo, if you look up the word, you have a meta means above or beyond, past something like a metamorphosis is above the shape so that you can come down on another one. Um, metanoia, the, no, the noeo is, is a cognitive frame of mind, a paradigm, and a meta is to be above it. Yeah. And so, in, in in other words, repentance is breaking frame out of your current way of thinking. People say, well, it means to change your mind, to turn around 180 degrees. No, it means to let go of the current set of propositions that you're holding on to right now and be able to be led in a different direction. Okay. Right. So, this whole idea of repenting from your sins, it's. Um, <laughs> That's that's manipulative language, really, yeah. when they associate it with salvation and try to make that a condition of whether or not a system is going to deem you as saved or not. Dude, that's good. Um, that's good. Okay, so you've got. Let's do a couple more questions. We've got one that came from came in from Gary Whitehouse. Gary Whitehouse uses the example of Jonah as it's related to free will. And and Gary, I'm going to take it one step further than what you did in, in your comment. And I know that you've got a really good point here. So let's address your point first, and then I'm going to take it one step further. You say, Josh, what about Jonah when God told him to go down to Nineveh to preach and Jonah went against God's will? There is the free will of man. So I would, I would take that as point number one, but point number two would be the Calvinist is going to use the example of Jonah and say, well, Jonah tried to go against God's will, and ultimately God used all these means to bring Jonah to do what God wanted him to do, and ultimately he did not have the will to go against God because God ultimately got him to do what he wanted to do anyways, what he predetermined. So, Kevin, how would you respond to both of those sides of the argument? Uh, it's Jonah is a narrative. I don't think that trying to prove or disprove propositions about the will of man is very helpful in either one of the situations. Cause anybody, if you, whatever you believe, you're obviously going to start with that presupposition and then post hoc rationalization back around to it. So yeah, Noah, uh, Jonah, Noah, <laughs> <laughs> Jonah, 
Jonah disobeyed, and then God got his attention back, and God apparently knew what the threshold of his ultimate rebellion would be. Yeah. But, um, you know, it's are we proving anything about the will of man there? I don't, I don't uh, let me put it this way. I don't need Jonah to prove anything about the will of man, but obviously people are making their own decisions as they go. I, I thought it was interesting what Chris Billy Jean Johnson said, believe knowledge yes. or accept versus accept. Yep. Let me put that up there. Um, so Chris Billy Jean Johnson. By the way, this is my aunt Billy. She was a missionary to Papua New Guinea, and uh, this is this is a really good question. Um, I think this is one that deserves a lot of attention when it comes to the idea of head knowledge um, and belief. Some people say that it's mental assent. Some people say that mental assent is necessary, but that the heart change has to be. Uh, something that converts from the head knowledge. So if you can't understand who Christ is first, then there's no other way that you can understand the gospel. And then you get into conversations about the essentials of salvation. But Kevin, you've got four words in this question. Believe, dot, 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 knowledge versus accept. Where would you go with that? No, this, this is great. Um, this is actually great because what you hear a lot of times is people to say, Oh, you need to accept Jesus. And I kind of I kind of wince a little bit when I hear that because I want you to use the biblical terminology. And the biblical terminology is receive. Yeah. As many as received him, to them gave he the power. So as soon as you start using now Calvinists have so much anti-biblical lingo, I know. But as soon as you start saying accept, they're going to jump all over that. No, we're never told to accept Jesus, but we are told to receive Jesus, okay? And we're told that there. And then when we're given the gospel by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, which I also received. Which you, So the, the word received shows up twice there. Received shows up in Romans chapter 5. So And then received, you, you have the word trust in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 12. And so the, the touchstone of the gospel is trust and receive. So when you say the word believe, we are thinking propositionally, and so the Bible helps us out with that. And most of the time, not every time, but most of the time when you see the word believe, you will see believe on or believe in, yeah. okay? And what that, what that conveys is that there is a sense of trust and commitment associated with accepting the proposition, not just not – just thinking that the proposition is true, okay? Like a proposition is a true statement, like cats are mammals. That's a propositional statement. A proposition is that, okay, Christ died for our sins. That's the proposition. But to to receive Jesus Christ, to trust Jesus Christ, to believe on Jesus Christ is to take that proposition and decide to commit in faith and trust toward it and and toward what Christ can do for you, understanding that the desired end state is something that he can move you to. Um, so that believe on and believe in. That's good, man. what you're usually going to see. All right, so let's I, go. With interestingly, the word believe, if you look up the etymology dictionary, online etymology dictionary, is very connected to the word love. So it's like a, to believe on and believe in is a commitment with love towards something, which is Dude, interesting. That's good. I've never, I've never heard that before. That's good. Um, okay, so we've got Jeff Bailey. Jeff Bailey says, 
The God of Calvinism tends to be what we would consider toxic leadership. That is, that God <laughs> decrees and uses us for his ends and not as ends in ourselves. The later, as it appears in Scripture, what do you think? Well, yeah, I see. A, I actually heard a cognitive psychologist recently referring to Calvinism as portending, I shouldn't use that word, as precipitating I see. narcissism in people because of the view of the person being elect and yeah. uh, being chosen, that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and see, I think, um, is it, it's, it's either, um, I think it was John MacArthur that, that talks about the types of people that Calvinism seems to draw um, being more narcissistic or more kind of um, in-your-face type of people. And, and I think a lot of it is going to have to do with the, the systematic. What, what, I, I think that ultimately your theology is going to drive so many different aspects of your walk with Christ, your kind of your attitude towards other people. And, and we've talked about it even in, in this episode here today with your motiva motivation for evangelism. And you just, you just mentioned it with believe in and believe on. It's the, etym the etymology of the word being rooted in love. I mean, is it, is it affecting your love for other people or, or your obligation to, to, to send the message out there? And there's a lot more that can go into that with your theology being able to drive your eschatology. And different aspects like that. Well, let me throw another 50-cent word in there, epistemology. The, yeah. When people, Jesus talked about people as soil. When you sow the seed, in, in Mark, the seed is the word of God. And Matthew, the children of the kingdom. But when, in the, when the seed is the word of God, you throw the seed out there, and there's different kinds of soil. And there seems to be certain people that constitute a certain kind of soil that is a good fitness landscape for the mind virus of Calvinism to spread in. <laughs> yeah. And uh, that's where you find it. But the, but to the point of epistemology is that epistemology is the set of criteria that you apply to information by which you determine whether or not it's true. Yeah. All right. Like the scientific method, for example. So, what we find when you look at science versus cognitive science is that people tend to believe things for reasons other than good epistemology. Yeah. And what that means, they're not, they, they don't believe Calvinism because they conducted epistemology and wound up at Calvinism. Yeah. There's lots of other influential reasons why they believe in Calvinism yeah. and epistemology has very little to do with it. Well, and I would say that your epistemology is driven from your ontology of God. So it, the, the yeah. knowledge that you arrive at through the methods that you use for your epistemology is going to be driven on who you think God is. And, and I, I think ultimately that's, that's, that's going to be the driving force of where that knowledge comes from. Is well, I really the, think it has a lot more to do with who their professor is I, and who that, their So is that's what I'm saying. It's who either, their Milms is. Exactly. Their, their, their institutional affiliation with the church and with the seminary. Yeah. Those kinds of things. And then, and then their ability to rank within those in-groups. Yeah. Their ability to be, to be considered part of an in-group and the ability to rank within an in-group has a lot more to do than people realize 
with what they profess to believe. Yeah. And then they, and all the good reasons they come up with for why they believe what they believe are post hoc rationalizations. And that's, they aren't the reasons they started believing in them. Yeah. They came up with those reasons after they prematurely accepted the system. Yeah. Okay, let's do our last question here. And uh, for the record, Vincent, if you're still watching, you can get a transcript on the YouTube channel. I believe if you just click the little three dot icon over next to the video after after the video is done and uploaded um, officially, you should be able to click that, click a transcript, and and it'll bring up a transcript. At least that's how I do it on YouTube videos. Uh, but Tarkin Sharples, I hope I'm saying that right, Tarkin. Question, what are the all things in 2 Corinthians 5.17? I've heard this verse used to say that to prove one is saved, they must have a changed life, similar to a perseverance of the saints, I think. And and I think this that's kind of going to be drawn from what James 2 would talk about um, in the interpretive side of a live faith versus a dead faith. You're going to have the Calvinist who's going to say that you have to have works to prove your, your faith or you have a dead faith and you were never actually saved. Um, <laughs> and, and there's another side of that conversation as well, but specifically with 2 Corinthians 5.17, Kevin, how would you answer that question? There's so much going on here, and this is embedded in the context of discussion about reconciliation, which is the same word that's used for atonement over in... in uh, Romans chapter 5, and then you see some of the extent of that reconciliation in Colossians chapter 1, which is all things in heaven and earth. So when someone is in Christ, all things are become new. Behold, all thi old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Something that's basically going on is a reframing of the mind is what is one of the things that's included here. And what um, you might call this relevance realization. So the way I've mentioned this before, imagine somebody who has no goal whatsoever, okay? And then um, all of a sudden you give that person a goal. They will start to reinterpret the world around them in terms of whether or not it brings them closer to that goal or not, okay? So if you're trying to learn how to juggle and you're really serious about it, you kind of start to interpret and filter things in and out based on whether or not they help you juggle better. All right. And you might see some techniques over here. It might change what you watch on Instagram or Facebook or YouTube. Like I, I subscribe to this person on Instagram called Taylor tries and she juggles. Okay. It's fun. <laughs> if I, it, 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 so it changed what I get exposed to. All right. Because there's this goal in mind. If you, if you go buy a blue Toyota Camry, you'd be surprised over the next two days how many blue Toyota Camrys yeah. you see that you never saw before. So it brings new things into your salience landscape. So you could say that it's a transformation of your entire salience landscape, things that you never noticed that because you have this new goal, your entire salience landscape transforms to where different things now stand out to you and new you have new relevance realization. Now, now that I'm trying to get to this, this is now relevant, whereas it wasn't before. Okay. So, um, if say you're trying to become fit and exercise, well now stopping by the section in the department store that has the fitness equipment may be relevant to you now, whereas it wasn't before you might just always walk by there, but now that you're doing something else, something else stands out to you. 
So when you have a goal in Christianity, you know, Jesus, uh, Paul said, I press toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He's pressing toward something. You have to have an ideal of something that you're pressing toward. And then everything in your reality gets reshaped in the salience landscape of what that ideal is. The Holy Ghost is an, is, is an influence that drives you toward that goal. The things that you consider to be sacred are orienting you in the right direction so that when the Holy Spirit moves you, you move in the right direction, not the wrong direction. The Bible is the map of the territory. Then you use the map with the Holy Spirit and what that which is sacred in life as, as your compass and your map, and you start to move towards something. And then when you're looking at the terrain, by the way, if you're following a paradigm, you will use the paradigm to navigate the map rather than using the map to navigate the terrain. So you want to use the map to navigate the terrain. As you do that, now that you have an ideal in mind, you're pressing toward the mark for the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. You have something in your mind of how you can be conformed in a sanctified fashion to be in the image of Christ the most you possibly can be while on this earth. And then everything in your salience landscape is transformed to where different things are now relevant in relation to that new goal. You're a new creature. You're a completely different person now when you have this new goal. Yeah, so um, I, I guess that's all you've got on that. I mean, I, I was really hoping for a little bit more, Kevin, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm just... Okay, so, gosh, man, I think that's a good place to... That's a good place to end it. I mean, ultimately, what we're doing is is we're coming full circle. That um, when we're talking about the transformation of a person being brought from darkness to light, from death to life that it, it's literally a whole new paradigm, a whole new world, a whole new life, that that it, literally everything in your life as you know it has been transformed and, and, and will be completely transformed through a process in your life. But that would be the sanctification side. And it seems like we've got, we've got so, so much, so many different moving parts that are making the message convoluted and confusing to, to make it seem like the justification and the sanctification are necessary in order to be visible to anyone who's looking on to say, well, you've been justified or you haven't been justified. And, and ultimately, guys, I think that if there's a good place to wrap up the conversation that we've had today, talking about repentance, talking about the decrees of God, talking about the identity of of who the God of the Bible is that we worship, talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he died for and who he loves and who can and can't believe on him, and talking about the emotional arguments that we've talked about that, that touch home with so many people in the death of a, a loved one and a premature death of a child. Um, what, ha- what, what happens with these questions when we, when we drive it through what the Bible is teaching versus what a systematic is teaching us. I think that the the message is clear, and and what Kevin just said, and I was being super sarcastic when I said that's all, all you got, man, because that's like, <laughs> dude. I mean, that's that's good stuff there. If that's all you take home from this conversation, guys, your whole life is different when you become a Christian. It's it's your transformed person from the inside out, and you see the world differently. But you can only see the world in a correct view 
if you see it through the way the Bible tells you to see it. And if you're willing to use Kevin's definition of repentance and and that metanoia, I'm one of those guys who would say, yeah, the simple the simple side of that, that word tells you it's a change of mind. And Kevin's going, no, it's an ascent to something beyond you to, to, to let go of your presuppositions and to move forward in what's right. And I'm going, man, that's a little bit better than just change your mind. <laughs> so I'm going to have to start using that. But Kevin, yeah. I'll give you the last word, man. How do you... Um, how would you wrap up our conversation here tonight? And uh, I'll just let you have it. Yeah, we we hit on a lot of things. And so um, what I want to encourage everybody to do is take part in the conversation. Find find people to talk to. Um, and, it, and it boils down to this ideal that's in your mind of pressing toward the mark is – you look for have have an idea in your mind of how to take on responsibility and without being resentful and bear the cost of that responsibility in a way that helps you and other people and look for the lowest possible hanging fruit in your immediate environment that you can do to make things better for yourself and others and then every day you do a little bit more as you do that you talk to people we just had a conversation on here in Ephesians 4 speaking the truth in love more important than coming to propositional beliefs about these things is the process of having the discussion about them and what that does for you with iron sharpening iron. So I, I just want to encourage everybody to get involved, have the conversations, read the Bible, have a dialectic over the text of Scripture with other people. Um, yeah, be, be plugged in and, and get involved. Have, have the conversation. Speak the truth in love. That's good. Um, well, I think that's going to be a good place to wrap it up, and I'll cut to my closing scene. But, Kevin, thank you so much for coming on tonight and being willing to talk about Calvinism. Hopefully we can we can work out a time to have a follow-up from this video and go from there. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. Look Anytime, forward to next man. time. Well, I'll catch up with you. <laughs> um, have a good night. I'm going to cut to my closing scene here and give you all an update on what to expect. Uh, moving forward... Let me see if I can get this music to play here. And um, I want to get this up on the screen. So we've got this this coming Sunday, July 12th. I'm debating uh, Catholic apologist Matthew Broderick uh, once again on the doctrine of purgatory. So this is going to, there's a, there's a lot more depth than you may realize to what we are talking about when it comes to proof texts and pretexts and bringing those presuppositions to the Word of God to, to make the Bible teach what you want it to teach. And purgatory is one of those, it just so happens. Uh, the Bible does not teach a purgatorial cleansing fire uh, where you atone for your own sins uh, until God decides that, that you've atoned for your sins enough. And this is going to be a, kind of the uh, the, a minority of a difference on what, what we're going to be talking about in this debate. But Matthew does a really good job at presenting his position. Um, he is, he's a Catholic. I've told him, I, I believe that you've got a false gospel. I believe that you've got a false religion and you need to come out of it. You need to believe in the, in the Jesus Christ who justifies and doesn't need your participation in your justification. And I mean that with love. I mean that to any Catholic who's watching this and is trusting in your own works for your salvation in any way. 
Um, it's either the work of, of Christ or or it's not uh, in, in order for you to, to be saved and justified specifically. So anyways, guys, I think that's going to be a wrap for tonight. Um, and I'll, we'll work with Kevin and I'll get you the word. Uh, I'll let you know when we are going to have a follow-up discussion on tonight's discussion and uh, get into some, some more um, side conversations on Calvinism and go from there. So anyways, that's all I've got, guys. 